the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, how does the world see the church right now? And then a word from David Platt about whether or not the sinner's prayer is even in the Bible. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Summer does feel like it's upon us, so we're glad that you're spending some time with us today. You might recognize I didn't introduce Aubrey. My normal co-host, Aubrey Sampson, is out today. She's got a speaking engagement. She will be back tomorrow. Uh, But flying solo today, glad to be with you. And uh, Aubrey will be back tomorrow and uh, ready to roll, ready to go. Again, we hope that you're having a great day. If you've missed any of our shows this week, if you missed yesterday's show, want to catch up on stuff from last week, just get our podcast. Wherever it is, get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And yesterday I realized there was a huge news event that we did not even discuss. I think it's because of... Aubrey's proclivity to avoid sports conversations. But did you see the Kentucky Derby over the weekend? This is a walking sermon illustration. This is a walking Disney movie or whatever else. It is an inspirational story. Most of you, like me, are probably not into horse racing, but the Kentucky Derby is always the one that you want to watch. And the longest shot of all of them, going off at 80 to 1, was Rich Strike. Rich Strike, this is, again, just picture this as a movie. Rich Strike, as of Friday morning, wasn't even in the Kentucky Derby, but then another horse had to drop out. At the last minute, Rich Strike was entered into the Kentucky Derby, and this horse ran one of the most unbelievable races at, uh, ever run. Rich Strike was in 17th place in the final turn. And by now you've probably seen that overhead video of him, of this horse kind of dodging and weaving through the other horses and past them all like they were standing still. Got to the inside rail, went down the, the final stretch and passed the best derby horses uh, that there were. And Rich Strike at 80 to 1 won the Kentucky. It was unbelievable. This horse had the greatest odd upset. This is the greatest upset since 1913 when a horse won at 91 to 1. Uh, you could have bought Rich Strike a couple months ago for $30,000. And by winning the Kentucky Derby, Rich Strike's owners uh, got a $1.86 million. And you do the math at 80 to 1. You put down 10 bucks and you're winning 800. You put in a, a trifecta with it. There was one. If you got the first four correct, it's called a superfecta. You would have won over $300,000 on a $2 bet. So unbelievable. Uh, If your pastor does not use the rich strike story in a sermon soon about perseverance 
about God can do amazing things, about broken, all of it, David and Goliath's story. This is a sermon illustration just out there for all of us. Hope you saw it. If you didn't, I know you already know who won, but go watch it. It's it, uh, The Kentucky Derby is known as the most exciting two minutes in all of sports. And this year, it really, really was. So anyway, forgot to mention that yesterday. And what an amazing sports story. Be watching for the Disney movie, I'm sure, within the year. But what I really wanted to talk about today was an article yesterday at the New York Times written by Ruth Graham. And and when things get to the New York Times versus Christianity Today or the Gospel Coalition, that's what we do a lot on the show. We do Christianity Today, Gospel Coalition, Relevant Magazine, whatever else, Christian publications. And sometimes you wonder... Are things that we are talking about in the in the church world resonating outside, outside of the church, in places like the New York Times? Or to ask it another way, what are, you know, writers, commentators in the media or at the New York Times, on CNN or wherever else, what are they observing within the church? What are they saying about the church? And that's why I found this article fascinating. It says this, it's titled this, as a, quote, seismic shift fractures evangelicals, an Arkansas pastor leaves home. And what this really is, it focuses on an Arkansas pastor uh, named Kevin Thompson, who left his church. Uh, He thought he would be in his church forever. Uh, But then he preached a sermon. He used an illustration about Tom Hanks and people in his church went crazy because apparently there was a QAnon conspiracy theory about Tom Hanks and a ring of Hollywood pedophiles and so on and so on and so on. Uh, And Tom Thompson, the age of 44. So basically my age at the time, he felt like he had to leave his church. And, And they use this as the jumping off point to say, Things are fracturing within the evangelical church, and they use the breaking point as the 2016 election, the 2020 election, all that has happened politically and what it has done within the church. They talk about Russell Moore and other things. So uh, the, the New York Times tries to trace back, and they say the intersection of evangelicalism and U.S. politics, the early 70s, the American right, Trump, and all of this other stuff. And obviously, they take it from a very um, New York Times angle. But you ask yourself, I think what is the most fascinating thing to me about this article, and it's a long article, is that the New York Times is looking at the evangelical church in America and saying it's fractured. It's fractured. That that the... Um, Uh, The societal issues, political issues, sociological issues, issues over economics and politics and race and and sexuality and everything is uh, has fractured the evangelical church to a point that they're asking in this article, what does the future hold? And the reason that I think that this is so important is because we've been saying these things, again, within the church world, but now they're being said from, and and it has been for a couple of years now, from outside the church world. And I have to ask, are we good with this being the church's reputation right now? Or to ask it in a more positive way, uh, what can we be doing as individual churches, as individual Christians, to do our part in turning this around. 
where, where, where everything right now seems to be fractured over tribalism, echo chambers, politics, and whatever. What are you going to do to say, you know what? I'm still going to stand up for the things that are essential, for the things that matter. I'm still going to make my voice heard, whether it be about abortion, issues of sexuality, whatever else it might be. But at the same time, I'm going to do it in such a way that the outside world doesn't look at the church and the Christians and go, Man, they're terrible people or they're fracturing from the inside or they don't need to be listened to or whatever else it might be. They all vote the same way. They all think the same way. So let's not even consider their words. This article is really telling. It does kind of place in front of us. This is how we are seen. This is how we are thought of. and there are the culture wars feel so hot right now. And hear me clearly, they are important. But are we okay with the fractured church idea? Are we okay with this idea that uh, there's no turning back and that the church will never be what it was? Or do we as individual Christians and individual churches say, you know, we're going to embrace civility, we're going to embrace. Um, love of neighbor. We're going to do these things while holding these other things strongly and passionately, but we are going to figure out a way to walk that line so that our reputation is not only one of unity, but one that the world looks to and says, I want to be uh, like them. I, I want the church to be strong. So uh, I found that to be, um, it shook me a little bit to read that in kind of a, a, a liberal um, publication like the New York Times looking at the church going, here's what we see and going, they're not wrong, but this has to change. Well, coming up next, many of us, if not all of us who are Christians have at some point in our lives prayed what is called the sinner's prayer. But David Platt and Mark Dever uh, had a conversation that I want to play for you a little bit of that asks, is the sinner's prayer even in the Bible? We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Back to the common good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today, normally joined by Aubrey Sampson, but Aubrey is out at a speaking engagement today. She will be back tomorrow. And in fact, she will be co-hosting with, I believe, Catherine McNeil. I will be out tomorrow. As you know, Aubrey and I, we both serve in churches. I'm a pastor of Four Corners Community Church uh, in Darien and uh, just south of Downers Grove. Uh, and we have, I have my uh, yearly all day elder meeting tomorrow. So I will not be here tomorrow. And then Aubrey and I will be back together on Thursday. Looking forward to being back together. But again, you can always find our shows, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. But <clears throat> if you've been raised in the church, if you are churched at all, you uh you know the phrase the sinner's prayer. So what is the sinner's prayer? Uh, the sinner's prayer is somebody presents the gospel. Think about you're at a Billy Graham crusade, you're at a youth conference, or you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody uh, over coffee, and you're presenting the gospel. And there comes that point of decision. And there comes that point where you say to the person across from you, or where it was said to you, uh, is this what you want to do? Let's pray this prayer. I've done this countless times 
at our church or when I was a youth pastor, leading others in prayer. Lord, uh, right? Like I, I put my faith in you today. It's this acknowledgement that I'm a sinner in need of salvation. It is this kind of one-time commitment. And the way we speak of it is, I prayed the prayer on this day. That's the day I became a Christian. That's the day uh, that I started following Jesus. And there, I don't believe there's anything wrong with that. But at the same time, here's the question that is gets to be a little uncomfortable. Is the sinner's prayer actually in the Bible? Is that the way the Bible speaks of coming to faith, of following Jesus? And I, I want to play a little bit of audio about David Platt and Mark Dever, two pastors um, and speakers who I highly recommend and I hold in high esteem. Okay, Mark Dever, uh, he's in Washington, D.C., I believe David Platt now is outside of Washington, D.C. as well in Virginia. And they had a conversation over, is the sinner's prayer in the Bible? So let's take a listen to some of that. What are some things that are healthy or unhealthy when you've seen, uh, when you hear people talk about, okay, if, once you pray this prayer, then you can be saved. Like, is that a good thing or is that not a good thing? The way we've approached evangelism, mm -hmm. particularly in, at least in, my experience, my uh, uh, Southern Baptist kind of picture, that's, that's a very common way to describe it. And so when people yeah. think, all right, we're going to go make disciples, that means, all right, we're going to go get people to pray the prayer. Like, how, What's healthy about that or not healthy about that? Well, it's basically not healthy, I think. Let me tell you some good things about yeah. it. I love the zeal for evangelism. Mm -hmm. I love the willingness to talk to another human and disagree with them and tell them they're wrong, which these days that's so valuable. Mm. I love the, the theology behind it that understands that there's a heaven and a hell that everybody needs a Savior, that Christ is their only hope, that they can't work for their salvation. It's a sheer gift of God by grace, apprehended by faith in Christ. I mean, there is so much that's good about it mm. that I, I'm, I'm almost loath to throw stones. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I think the effect in the churches of poor evangelism has been so disastrous mm -hmm. to our witness and, ironically, our evangelistic task. I can't mm -hmm. tell you how many times I've been at conventions where people are always praying the prayer to receive Christ. Mm -hmm. I've been in, a, like, a taxi and a taxi cab driver, when I start talking about the Lord, he'll joke with me that he's already prayed to receive Christ five times that day mm -hmm. or something. It, Christians think that, or Christians think that non-Christians don't understand what's going on there. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't coerce somebody into truly being converted. You can share the gospel, you can love them, you can pray for them, you can urge them; they need to make the right decision. But you know, I think if you go back to the Great Awakening, one of the high points of evangelism in our in our country's history. You won't find them praying the prayer. Hmm. You'll find them being exhorted to repent and believe. Then they don't try to count them up. Mm -hmm. You know. All right. So Platt sets it up and and really lets Mark Dever kind of go in. And the first thing I really appreciate about their conversation is that both of them, in this case, Dever, as he's talking, have a clear passion for evangelism. They have a clear passion. Dever is talking about the instances recently where he's presented the gospel and he's talked about this. But here's where they kind of challenge us. They say uh, that this idea of pray this prayer and you will be saved uh, is not a very healthy way to think of evangelism. Uh, in fact, according to Dever, uh, in the country's last great awakening, people were not exhorted to pray a prayer, but rather to repent and believe that that's the biblical model. Repent and believe. And evangelism seen in this light will never tell a person that praying the prayer would save them. Instead, the approach would be continually defined for that person, the nature of repentance and faith. So here's the idea that 
that there's not a prayer moment and that's the moment of salvation and nothing else matters before or after that. But instead, a decision is made to follow a Jesus to repent of my sin and believe. But as we always talk about the journey of sanctification, that is a lifelong journey. So yes, we are justified in a moment, but we want people to realize that it's not this magic thing. But that instead, uh, that that it is a continual idea of repent and believe, repent and believe. And uh, they go on to say that a person's sincerity about his or her salvation is not dependent upon the facts of a prayer, but actually the the uh, uh, the fruits of the spirit. And so instead of quickly declaring someone to be a Christian after praying a prayer, it's wiser to have that person go through the baptism process at your church to aid in discerning this profession of faith. How'd they put it? To offer a blanket assurance to someone who has just agreed to certain doctrinal truths about Christ and is sorrowful over their sin, right? Like they really are God's doing something in their life. It can produce a, a culture of false professions where people's lives are no different than before when they prayed. I, I would put it this way in my own life. Uh, I grew up in the church. I went to Billy Graham crusade, went to uh, youth camp a couple times a year. I must have prayed the prayer a half a dozen times, probably more than that, just to go, man, I, I got to make sure that it sticks this time. I have to make sure uh, that I'm actually said it correctly. And again, uh, I, I, there is nothing at all wrong with an altar call, right? There's the old, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. But, but we have to be careful. We, we want people to realize that, that what is going on is a continual throwing off the sin that so easily entangles and focusing my eyes on Jesus. There's this repenting and belief. There's this uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is there is a uh, the fruits of the Spirit showing itself in our lives. And that when we just make it for people, pray this prayer and all is well, we might be walking them inadvertently. Uh, into some danger spots. And so I, I found this to be really fascinating. Do you agree that Platt and Dever are correct here? But most of all, what I want you to see is their heart for this. Their heart for this is a passion and a um, a longing to see people come to faith. They have a passion for evangelism. And we as pastors, we as Christians, we need a passion for evangelism. Less passion to be right and critique, more passion to see people understand the name of Jesus. And that's why I listen to people like Dever and Platt and them. Do I agree with everything they say? No, I don't agree with anything. I don't agree with everything I say on a daily basis. But when it's coming out of a heart to see people know Jesus, to see people grow in their faith, I think it is worth listening to. So this idea of the sinner's prayer not being the end all, but instead, how do we talk to people about a lifetime journey of faith uh, shown through the fruits of the Spirit, a, con- a consistent repent and believe, I think is really helpful. Well, coming up next, uh, why physical presence matters. The Gospel Coalition talked about physical presence specifically to hurting Christians. What do we think about that? Why is it so important? We're going to talk about proximity and presence next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I almost said alongside Aubrey Sampson. She is not here today. I am flying solo. I am alongside myself today. Aubrey is out at a speaking engagement. She will be back tomorrow. In fact, I will not be here tomorrow. Aubrey will be co-hosting with Catherine McNeil. And then Aubrey and I will be back together on Thursday. Hope that you're having a great day. Go out and enjoy the weather. Please listen to The Common Good as you do that. But go for a walk tonight. Uh, You know what I was able to do yesterday? I mowed the lawn. And you might be like, well, that sounds too bad. I love mowing the lawn. It is a sign of spring. It is a sign of summer. Um, It's a wonderful. I put my headphones on, uh, just get a good sweat going. I push mow my yard. I love it. Like People are like, hey, you have a 14-year-old son. Shouldn't he be mowing the lawn? I'm like, no. I want to mow the lawn. There's other things he can be doing around the house and wherever else. But I would like to mow the lawn as long as I possibly can. So yesterday, it was just a fun day. Like, okay, lawn needs to be mowed. It's not super wet anymore from all the rain. So anyway, hope you're enjoying this beautiful weather. Praise Jesus for the sunlight and the blue skies. Allow that to remind you uh, of his goodness. And that in spring, um, all things are made new, right? There's, there's, when we look at nature around us, we're reminded of good words of scripture Uh, That in the springtime, all things are made new. We're reminded of the transformational work of God in our lives. And so even as you battle allergies and other things, uh, have a thankful heart for for the springtime and the coming summer. And uh, yeah, so anyway, enjoy a walk. All that to say, enjoy a walk today. Before we jump into what I want to talk about, about proximity and presence, let me remind you that right now we are partnering with our friends from Food for the Poor. Food for the Poor is a wonderful organization. Like I believe in them greatly. And what they usually are doing, usually when we bring on Food for the Poor, it is to talk about providing uh, food, much needed food for people who are struggling in, in Central America, in you know Guatemala and Haiti and other places. They're going and they are stepping in and meeting the needs uh, for people who desperately need food. Well, what, right now what Food for the Poor is, they have shifted it very temporarily to go, how can we help with the food crisis going on in Ukraine? We've all watched the news. We know what's going on in the Ukraine. We know that people are uh, displaced. We know that people are starving. We know that food and shelter and protection is desperately needed. And we are praying not only for an end to this war, but we're praying for the people. And many of you, like myself, are probably asking, is there anything that I can do? It's on the other side of the world. What, what could I do for that? As there are roughly uh, 3 million refugees who have fled the Ukraine, there are estimates that over 6 million people have been displaced within the country. Well, let me remind you that Food for the Poor is stepping in and providing desperately needed meals for the people in Ukraine. For every dollar that you give, it provides four meals. So you do the math, right? You give $100, that's gonna provide 400 meals for children and families in the Ukraine, $150, 600 meals. Now think about this. Some of you have uh, you have more money than you know what to do with out there. So if you were to give $1,000, you are providing 4,000 meals for people whose lives have been turned upside down and who are facing danger every day. So let me implore you, let me beg you, let me encourage you to give whatever you can give 
to food for the poor. There's a couple different ways you can do that. You can go to 1160hope.com and click on the Help Ukraine banner. That's 1160hope.com. Click on the Help Ukraine banner, or you can make a phone call, 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-HOPE, 901-4673. And again, any amount is wonderful. The more, the better, as we look to partner with our friends at Food for the Poor to help the people in Ukraine. Well, yesterday there was a wonderful article at the Gospel Coalition written by Anna Mead Harris called this, Don't Keep Your Distance, Why Physical Presence Matters for Hurting Christians. And she begins by telling the story of ringer sports writer Jonathan Sharks, who wrote an unbelievable article called, Does My Son Know You? Uh, Jonathan Sharks came on to our show to talk about that article. I would encourage you to go get our podcast, search for Jonathan Sharks, T-J-A-R-K-S. It was uh, one of my favorite interviews that we have ever done uh, because he, Jonathan Sharks is facing aggressive cancer as a young man, and he's likely to die, he says in his own article, before his two-year-old son is old enough to know him. And he writes of his hope that his friends will show up for his son in his absence. Uh, and after sharing the article, Anna says here, uh, their group text, their sons emailed Sharks to let him know that his hope has been their reality. And she, stare, she shares that it's been 11 years since her own husband died and that she has had friends from uh, just their friends show up for countless games, taught her boys how to water ski, eaten barbecue, she says, attended graduations, whatever else it might be. And so basically she said, all of these men have stepped in for her husband. And obviously she wishes more than anything that her husband was still here. But now these men have shown up uh, by just being there to take her son to breakfast before school or uh, to teach her son how to change a flat tire or tie a tire or whatever else it might be. And this is led Anna Mead Harris here to write on the presence, the, the importance of presence, the importance of proximity, particularly with those who are hurting, those who are in distress, those who are weeping. And she says, I hate to think what my sons might have missed out on if those friends had not come close, if they had not stayed closely. And she talks about Paul's exhortation in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And she italicized this, the word with, and she says, knowing that the with part is the important part. It is what it matters. Weeping with those who weep, she says, can be one of the hardest expressions of genuine love, that it could be awkward. It could be difficult. But Jesus, she says, says, and he embodies, go and be with those who are hurting. Be, be present with those who are weeping and be present with them in their joy. Also, she says, be together, rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. Just start by showing up. And she goes on to say, now that my three sons are in their 20s, their dad's friends have become their friends, all because those men took the time and made the effort to be involved in their lives face to face. These men, she writes, have demonstrated love through presence, the embodied affection that mirrors the kindness of Emmanuel, God with us. 
One day, she writes, we'll experience fullness of joy in God's presence, but we don't have to wait until heaven to get started. Gathering with other believers in the here and now is a foretaste of the glorious togetherness to come. And then Anna Mead Harris just writes this, start showing up now. I, I'm so grateful for this article because what happens in our lives is that many of us, we're just so busy. We're just so busy. And you start to lose sight of what's going on in the people around you. But when the loved one, uh, when someone tragically dies, what does it look like to be with those who are hurting? When somebody is going through a um, just a health crisis, what does it mean to go through that with them? The church is called to be with those who are hurting. We weep with those who weep. And what does that look like in your life? Who is somebody uh, for whom you can step in and be with? If somebody comes to mind for you, then please don't hesitate to do something about it. Please don't hesitate to jump into their lives Offer your services in whatever way and be with them. Physical presence matters. Proximity matters. Thankful for that word from Anna Mead Harris. Well, coming up next, one of our favorite blogs, Scott Sauls. He wrote recently about putting our worst foot forward for the glory of God. I want to revisit that one next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside uh, myself today. I almost said it again. I'm so used to saying alongside Aubrey Sampson. Aubrey is not here today, but instead, Aubrey is out at a speaking engagement. She will be back tomorrow. I'm flying solo today. Hope everybody is doing well and enjoying the beautiful weather out there. Well, uh, before we jump into our next kind of topic here, what I do want to remind us and encourage us is about the partnership that we here at AM 1160 have with a great organization called Food for the Poor. Uh, Food for the Poor, you've, if you've been with this show at all, you know that we spend time with Food for the Poor, usually raising money to help provide desperately needed meals in Central America, places like Guatemala and Nicaragua, places like Haiti and other places where food for the poor can step in and say, uh, we can do something about the unbelievable pain and hardship going on around food insecurity. Well, now, right now what they've done is they have seen what's going on in Ukraine that there are right now 3 million refugees who have fled Ukraine and that there are estimates that over 6 million people have been displaced within the country. And they've said, you know, we can't end the war. We can't do all, solve all the problems, but we can do what we do best. Food for the poor is saying we can go in and provide desperately needed food for people who are without food right now, for these refugees, for these millions of people displaced within the country. And they're saying, you know what we can do? We can step into this problem. And if you're like me, you've watched the news 
And you've wanted to see, okay, what's going on over in the Ukraine, but you've wanted to also ask, what can I do? Is there anything that I can do? Is there any way that I can step in? And it feels like the answer to that question is no. Well, now you have an opportunity through Food for the Poor to help provide desperately needed meals. Not, uh, it'd be great. No, but these are desperately life-changing, life-altering meals for the people in Ukraine. So for $1... You could provide four meals. So do the math. $100, you can provide 400 meals. Uh, For $200, you could provide 800 meals. For $1,000, you could provide 4,000 meals. What better can you do with your money right now, people? What better can you do than stepping into this hardship right now and providing food? So... If you'd be willing to be part of that solution to aiding what Food for the Poor is doing. Oh, and let me also remind you that Food for the Poor, one reason that we partner with them is because all of the money you give goes to buying food and getting it over there. There's not going, you know, it's not like 50% of this for every dollar is going to administrative costs. That's not how Food for the Poor works. But the money you give is going to provide food. So here's what you need to do. Go to 1160hope.com. Click on the Help Ukraine banner. Again, that's 1160hope.com. Click on the Help Ukraine banner. Or you could call 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-HOPE. And you can provide whatever amount of money you're able to give. So again, 1160hope.com. Click the Help Ukraine banner or call 855-901-4673. Speaking of feeling overwhelmed, Trevin Wax, who we talked even a little bit about yesterday, he wrote at the Gospel Coalition. You can go there to thegospelcoalition.org. He asks, what prevents tears of gratitude for grace? What prevents tears of gratitude? He says, every now and then a song brings me to tears. Sometimes it's an old song. Sometimes it's a new song, but the lyrics, the songs, and it drives me to to see the grace of God and literally cry. And so he asks, all the times when glorious gospel truth has me fumbling for Kleenexes, there are many times when I sing about amazing grace with dry eyes and a lukewarm heart. This has me wondering, What is it that dries up the heart and keeps us from feeling and experiencing the marvelous, matchless grace of God? What keeps the tear ducts blocked? I think that is a fascinating question. Because there are times where you, we've all had those times where you see something online, you listen to a sermon, or more likely you sing a song or hear a song, and it drives you to tears because of there's a softness in you. There's a a softness due to life circumstances. There might be a softness due to pain. But whatever it is, you're driven to tears. But other times you can sing Amazing Grace, uh, How Great Thou Art, or you know, a new, newer song like In Christ Alone or whatever else. And you just think to yourself, I don't know, what am I doing for lunch later today? And there, it doesn't penetrate the soul. And Trevin Wax wants to say, there's something going on in us that is the differentiation. Uh, what is it that caused me to be lukewarm? What is it that causes my heart to be hard? What is it that causes me to hear the gospel and feel no emotion around it, to sing gospel truths and feel no emotion around it? What is it? Have you ever wondered that? I've wondered that often in my own life because I long 
to be moved by the gospel. I long to be moved by the words of these songs or the words of scripture that says, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. I would say if I had to answer this question, what is it that stops us from crying? What is it that stops us from feeling? What is it that stops us from uh, just knowing this stuff? I think the word, the really key word here is the word awe. And let me, let me unpack that a little bit. I think uh, when the Bible talks about awe, this awe and reverence of God, it always speaks of it in this overwhelming, I can't believe what God has done for me. I can't believe the grace shown to me. There's this awe. Uh, I think about awe also being Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, being called up and seeing God and being, being in awe of his goodness. I think of Peter falling before Jesus saying, uh, depart from me for I'm a sinner in awe. I think of the book of Revelation and, and the, uh, the awe, the majesty of God. And when we understand who God is and who we are in relationship to God, in relation to God, that I am a sinner and what I deserve, then when we are shown the grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it, it births in us awe. What do you mean I'm shown grace? What do you mean I'm shown favorite? What do you mean I am forgiven? And it is overwhelming. You know, you think of times of awe in your life. I can think of standing in the before the Grand Canyon for the first time in awe of God's majesty and craftsmanship. I can think of holding my children for the first time in awe of that moment. So how is your awe? I think that's the question that really undergirds this article from Trevin Wax. How's your awe? Are you at awe? Are you at all in awe of who God is and what he has done for you? Are you at all in awe of the grace that he has shown you? If the awe is low, uh, the emotion will be low. The, um, and uh, the rest will follow. If I, if I'm without awe, I will also be without tears. And Wax ends the article this way. He says, only Jesus gives us grace that meets us in our darkest hour. Grace that plums the depth of our cavernous hearts. Grace that transforms the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Undeserved favor strips us of self-righteousness and shows up our paltry attempts at self-validation. Submit to the humble stripping away of all our pride, and then we can bask in the grace that makes us sing louder, shout for joy, and weep with gratitude. That's the grace we see in the running feet of the father in the story of the prodigal son. How's your awe? That's really a question each of us needs to answer. Well, coming up next, this isn't a new story, but I want to pray, uh, play a part of a sermon that when you find out what happened after this sermon will blow you away. Going to play that next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AIM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, so glad to have you with us on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. 
Uh, hey, if you've missed any of the show, I'd love for you to go get the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. Even if you haven't missed the show, go get the podcast. It's the way the world works right now, and it really does help us out if you do subscribe to the podcast. So we would ask that you do that. You can also find our stuff online at 1160hope.com. Aubrey, my, Aubrey Samson, my normal co-host, is not here today. She will be back tomorrow. Uh, she is out at a speaking engagement. Uh, but I hope that you are doing well today. I was reminded, I was looking on Twitter the other day and somebody reposted this video and it reminded me of a story. And I want to tell the story and then I'm going to ask that you uh, kind of listen to a little bit of a sermon of audio because it is so powerful. Uh, it, it, this guy, uh, and this is from Easter of 2020. Uh Long time Kilgore, I believe that's Washington, long time Kilgore pastor um, by the name of Earl Buddy Duggins. He was the pastor of Forest Home Baptist Church, uh, and he, he preached an Easter message. And he had been the pastor for 55 years, just faithfully preaching, faithfully leading. Well, he preached this Easter message um, two months after his wife had just passed away from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that she had battled for 20, 30 years or so. He preached this Easter message and he concluded by just talking about what's going on in his life, wrestling with the death of his wife and the pain that that has caused. And he concluded this Easter message. And then Pastor Duggins stepped off the stage and within an hour or two fell ill and died of a heart attack at the age of 81. And I want to, I tell you that story um, because what I want you to know is I want you to hear what he had just said before that. Picture this, preaching an Easter message, pouring your heart out personally, and then dying. Because that adds such context to the words that he preached. So just to make sure I, I get this right, he was a pastor for 55 years, uh, but he was at this church for 10, uh, and that he had been at other churches before that. But this is the First Baptist Church of Winsboro. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. He's at, that's where he was before this. But anyway, he passes away after giving this Easter message. Here's what I want to do. I want to play the last two or three minutes of his Easter message and I want you to remember as you listen to it that these are essentially the last public words he ever gave, dying an hour or two later. Let's listen to what he had to say. I closed with this true testimony from my heart. I prayed about it, and God told me to give it. Just about two and a half months ago, my wife of 59 years plus died. I was standing by her bedside. I kissed her lips just seconds before she drew her last breath. My family was there, my girls, my one of my grandsons, and my son-in-law were there, and we, of course, wept. I said these words absent from the body, present with the Lord, and you know, I made it fair during the next few days, making arrangements, uh, doing the funeral. After that, I was having a difficult time sleeping. I would cry myself to sleep every night. 
My family stayed with me a few nights. Then I stayed over at my daughter's home for a few nights. They say, how you doing, Dad? I say, oh, I'm fine. But I would cover up my head in the little room, and I would cry and cry and cry. And after a while, the Lord spoke to my heart, and I began to thank God. I would formally say, God help me, God help me, God help me. And then the Bible came to my heart, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And I wanted to be in God's will. And so I began to pray. Lord, I thank you for the 59 years, 4 months, 13 days, and 1 hour that we had together. And then it came to me, what, why am I left? And that bothered my heart. Here's my wife that we wanted to go together. And she's now gone. And I said, well, Lord, God, why am I left? And the answer has come to my heart. I've left you here to do nothing more than to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as you've been preaching for 55 years. So I stand today, this resurrection day, to tell you Jesus Christ is alive. He has helped me. He has blessed me. I bless his holy name today. All for Jesus. He is a true living Savior. He's alive. He was born of the virgin. He lived a perfect life. He was crucified out on Mount Calvary, put in a borrowed tomb. But on the third day, on God's schedule, up from the grave, he arose and he lives to help us. And he lives as our blessed hope. Trust him today. Believe. On the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Amen. Folks, I, I get chills listening to that. I get chills listening to that, knowing what was to come. Then he opened up about what it was like to stand by his wife's bedside as she passed away. And he struggled trying to understand why he had died before, why she had died before him. And then in prayer, he said the answer came to him. That God said, I've left you here to do nothing more than to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that you've been preaching for 55 years. He had a renewal of his calling. He was reminded, this is why you're here. And then he preached the gospel on that Easter morning one more time and passed away. At this moment, the video that I just, the audio that I just played is a video. That video over the last three minutes or so of his Easter message before passing away has been viewed five, uh, just under five million times. Think about that, friends. Think about the difference that his words have made. And I guess without being too melancholy and overdramatic, I would ask you this. If you knew that you just had one more message to share, one more sermon to preach, one more Facebook post to post, one more time around the table with your loved ones, what would your message be? What would you say? My guess is Reverend Duggins here, if he had known in advance that that was his last sermon, he would have said exactly what he said. And that's what makes it so powerful. He proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. He proclaimed the life, death, and resurrection that we celebrate on Easter morning. And then he died. And then he died. Famously, I forget who said it, but famously there was... Uh, there's a saying about pastors that the uh, that the word is preach the gospel and then die. And that's literally what this guy did. 
And so I want to celebrate his words. I want to celebrate a life well lived. I want to celebrate a ministry well done. But I want more so to celebrate powerful, Holy Spirit-infused, gospel-proclaiming words moments before this man went to be with his Savior and his wife. I, I, I get chills just thinking about this. But the book of James tells us we have no idea how much time we have left. So when I say, what if you knew, the real answer is we are called to live as if this is our reality. I pray that I've got 40 more years left or whatever more than that. But who knows? Who knows if that is the that is the case? So I wanted to share those powerful words for you. Uh, hopefully they're an encouragement to you. The good news of Jesus Christ, finishing, also finishing your race well, living as if it could come to end at any point. Thank you for taking time to listen to that. I find that so powerful. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show. It's graduation season. So I want to end with uh, a powerful graduation message that was given. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Thank you for spending time with us, whether you did on the radio or on the podcast. Just glad to have you with us on a beautiful spring, almost summer feeling day here in the Chicagoland area. Well, it's graduation season. And as you know, if you listen to the show, you know this is an emotional graduation season for me and my wife as our oldest daughter is about to graduate high school this year. She graduates a week from Friday, and it is uh, thrilling. We are proud of her, but it's also a little overwhelming to go, oh my gosh, we're going to have a high school graduate. And I've jokingly told you, I'm just hearing um, you know, butterfly kisses or uh, cats in the cradle every time I turn the corner. But uh, in all seriousness, just couldn't be prouder. And she's ready, ready to graduate. That's the beautiful thing about graduations, right? You're like, okay, ready to do it, ready to do it because it's time, it's time. And so she'll head off to college at the end of the summer. And that will be another enormous life moment for us. On a smaller scale, my my middle child, my son, he quote unquote graduates middle school this year. So we'll celebrate that this year. And then he will head off to high school next year. My youngest daughter has one more year of junior high still to go. Uh, but with graduation comes graduation uh, commencement speech season. And man, you can really get lost going down a rabbit trail of commencement speeches. They're the best. I encourage you to go to YouTube at some point today or this week and just search inspiring commencement addresses and you will you will lose hours possibly just listening to clips of commencement speeches and there is one famous one that I want to share with you this was from just a couple years ago at the University of Texas at Austin and it was given um by uh Admiral uh McCraven Admiral McCraven that's his name and he gave a much longer speech than this, but he's a Navy Admiral, William McRaven, and he gives this speech to the graduating class at the University of Texas in Austin. And here's what I'd like to ask. if What do you expect from commencement speakers? Because what I really think is what we expect and what I'd probably do if I was ever asked to give a commencement address, you would say things like, you can change the world. You go from here and change the world. 
you go from here and you you just change you do you be your part in changing the world and admiral mcraven he kind of says that but he gets to it eventually boils it down to something that is so challenging and where I want to leave us today. So uh, I'm not going to play, obviously, the whole speech. Let's play like the last two minutes of what uh, Navy SEAL Admiral William McRaven said a couple years ago to the graduating class at the University of Texas at Austin. To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So here are the 10 lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, <laughs> that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, Start off by making your bed. I love the fact that he eventually looks at these graduating seniors who are waiting to hear from this powerful uh, Navy SEAL Admiral, give me the, the meaning of life, or not only the meaning, but give me the key to a life that matters. And he ends up with make your bed. Make your bed. Make your bed. And then he explains it. Do the small things. And it will lead to bigger things. And then I just love, and everybody probably heard everybody laugh, where he says, and if you have a bad day, at least you come home to a made bed. Make your bed. Another way to say all of what he's saying, and I think this is so important in the church right now, is if you're not faithful with the little things, how can you expect to do big things? If you're not willing to do the little things, how can you expect to do big things? If you're not willing to make your bed, then why would you expect to change the world, to start a company, to be a Navy SEAL, to be whatever else? Likewise, in the church, if you're not willing to work the nursery, if you're not willing to vacuum the church, why do you expect that, that you should be worthy of getting up and speaking or leading some huge mission or whatever else? The little things are not for the little people. The little things are for all of us, and they become the proving ground and the training ground to then build and do bigger things. I just love this. That he says, hey, do you want to do huge things? Do you want to change the world? Start off by making your bed. I'm sure when they listened to that, the first people were probably like, he's kidding, right? But there's a profoundness to this. If you want to run, start by crawling. 
if you want to go a mile, take a couple steps. That these build upon each other and go make your bed. It's so simple, but it's so profound. So what do you think about that, friends, as we close out our show today? Let's ask ourselves the hard questions. Are you willing to do the little things that may down the line, may or may not, but may down the line lead to bigger things? Are you willing to put in the time, the relational equity, uh, the educational equity, the finance, whatever else it might be? Are you willing to take the baby steps? Are you willing to metaphorically here speaking, make your bed, believing that that then becomes the doorway uh, to bigger things. See, all of us want to change the world. All of us are like, I'm going to change the world. But I know from personal experience, myself included, not all of us are going to make our beds. Uh, but do the do the right things, no matter how small they are. Um, man, it's profound. It's thought-provoking. But the idea that making our beds changes everything, I, I'm grateful for these words. I go back to these every year. If you were speaking to graduating class right now, what exactly, what would you tell them? If you were speaking to yourself, launching yourself out, what would you say? What is the key to living out our dreams? What is the key to changing the world? What is the key to these big, audacious dreams? The answer is making your bed. And then we go from there. So let's close today by saying, make your bed. Because as Admiral McCraven said, even if you have a bad day, at least you come home to a made bed. But that that also sets the building blocks to much bigger things. Thought that was a really fun way to end the show today. Go do a deep dive uh, on graduation and commencement addresses. You will not uh, regret it. Well, I hope that you enjoyed our show today. Come back tomorrow as Aubrey Sampson will be joined by Catherine McNeil. And then Aubrey and I will be back again together on Thursday. So again, thanks for joining us. Join Aubrey and Catherine tomorrow from four until six. But until then, we hope that you have a great day. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.